It would seem that the church should be the place where we see forgiveness best exemplified. Church really should be a place where people come in and they know they're going to find grace and mercy because that's the entire message of the Bible is grace and mercy. However, many people stay away from church because they feel like they get the exact opposite. The church is full of hypocrites. You know, this person is, is such a terrible person and they're a pastor. This person is such a terrible person. You don't know what they've done to me and they're a church leader. How could they say that when I know how they act at home? They seem to be two different kinds of people. Church really should be a place where we can find sanctuary, that we know that we have a family apart from our physical family. But if you think about it, it's not that easy to forgive people, is it? It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or non-Christian. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, if people hurt you, it's not easy to just say, I forgive you, and to move on. But we know as Christians we're supposed to forgive because that's what God commands us to do. It's not an option. It's not a, you can receive forgiveness, and if you want, you can forgive people too. It's actually what God tells us to do. If you've been forgiven of so much, how can you hold a grudge against your brother or sister? So if that's the case, then we have to ask a further question, which is, well, if we have to forgive, then what do we do with people that hurt us? In other words, how do we forgive? Because we know that we're told to forgive, but what does it practically look like? Say that a person stabs you in the back. One too many times, right? Person, and this happens to all of us. People lie to us. People say nice things out of one corner of the mouth, and out of the other corner of the mouth, they will tattle on you. They'll say mean things about you. People will gossip. What do you do when someone gossips about you? Tells all of your secrets. Let's say that you you've have a really good friend. You, share, you shared something really personal from your heart. Don't tell anybody, please, just, just between you and me. And they tell everybody. Well, yeah, you forgive them, but does that mean you're going to tell them all of your secrets again? But if you don't, are you really forgiving that person? So it can be easy on paper to say, I forgive, but what does it actually mean and what does it actually look like? You just forgive and forget? Pretend it never happened? When I was in high school, I wasn't really picked on that much, surprisingly. I should have been. I was a weirdo. But when I was approaching high school in eighth grade or so, a bunch of my friends, we went out on these little boats and we went fishing. It's like the one time I've gone fishing in my life. Out on a boat and I went with my friend and his friend and this kid didn't know me and he picked on me. He would throw me off of the boat into the water. Like continually. Every time I tried to get back on the boat, he picked me up and throw me in the, boat, uh, in the water again. I weighed like 90 pounds at that time. I was this tiny little kid. And it made me so upset and so angry. Never talked to that kid ever again. Didn't want to be his friend. And in the same way, sometimes, and it, it may not be that silly, but to me, that was a big deal. I mean, if someone's picking on you, and maybe that's happened to you, it doesn't feel good. And even if you forgive someone, that doesn't mean that you suddenly trust them and you're going to allow them to continually hurt you. So the question becomes, should I stay away from that person? Or should I allow myself to be continually hurt by that person? If 
I know that they're not genuinely sorry, but they ask for forgiveness, do I still have to forgive? You know, we are always looking for grace for ourselves and very slow to hand it out to other people. In other words, when you're late to class, you expect mercy from your teacher. Please forgive me. I'm sorry. I, I won't ever do it again. It's this one time I was caught up. I'm having a terrible day. It's just everything's falling apart. Just give me mercy. And then when your teacher is late to class, oh, this hypocrite. Right? Your teacher got caught up or whatever. I don't know what they're doing. But they, they walk into the class late and you're like, this teacher, who do they think they are? We, want to ex we expect grace for ourselves, and we're very slow to hand it out to other people. So why is grace so hard to give and change in people's hearts so hard to believe? The book of Philemon is about this very topic. It's about church drama. It's about a mess. It's about a guy named Philemon, a guy named Onesimus, and a guy named Paul. Bunch of different people. And before we read the letter, I want you to understand the background of this. So Paul, as he wrote this letter, he was in prison. He actually wrote this probably around the same time that he wrote the book of Colossians. And so he's writing this letter to this guy, Philemon. Philemon, as we see through church history and probably in this letter too, we see that he's probably a rich guy. He owns slaves and he has a giant house. And in this house, he actually houses the church. So this guy probably has a lot of money. And just so you know, we'll, we'll talk about slavery a little bit in there in the Roman era. About 50% of the population was slaves. It was an economic system back then. So if you came into debt, it's not like you just put on your credit card and said, here you go. What happened is you served for seven years and you were a slave to somebody else until you paid off your debt. Actually, it was a pretty good system because... Oftentimes, the people that are slaves, if you got a good job at someone, you know, someone who is rich or wealthy person, you got to be in their house, you got paid for what you did, you got your freedom at the end of seven years, and you got treated like a king while you're in a palace. So slavery was a lot different than what we would think of when we think of uh, slavery immediately. Anyway, so Philemon owned some slaves, probably a rich guy. He housed the church. And he was actually a person that Paul himself ministered to when he was preaching constantly at Ephesus. Philemon jumped in, heard him preach. He got saved through the ministry of Paul. Now Onesimus was a slave of Philemon. And most likely he robbed Philemon of whatever it was, probably money, and got away with it. Onesimus, running away from Philemon after stealing a whole bunch of money, found Paul... And got saved while he was in prison. So Paul, a prisoner at this time, writing letters, sees Onesimus, chats with Onesimus. Onesimus gets saved. And, you know, I, I can imagine down the line, you're probably talking. He says, so Onesimus, where are you from? I'm actually from this place. I, I don't know, you know, it's this place like Colossae. I don't know if you know it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know the, I know the church down there. And I know this guy Philemon. Oh, Philemon is actually my... My boss, he's the guy I stole money from and I ran away from his house. I took all his money. So Paul, hearing about this and discovering Onesimus' wrongdoing, charged Onesimus to reconcile with Philemon. So this guy, Tychicus, was a friend of Paul, a lot of confusing names, but he carried the letter with Onesimus 
to Colossians and on his way dropping off this letter to the Colossians that we read. And actually it says in Colossians that Onesimus is with this guy Tychicus. Drops off the letter there and then goes over to Philemon to personally deliver this letter of reconciliation. So imagine Philemon's reaction. Philemon, knowing that his slave Onesimus ran away, ran away from home, took his stuff, and then he comes with this guy that he knows, Tychicus, up to his house, bearing this letter. What was going through his head? What was Philemon thinking? There he is, that loser, that guy who stole all my stuff, this ungrateful brat. Just, I took him into my home, I let him serve with me, takes all my stuff, and leaves. And there he is. And what's he doing with my friend Tychicus? Well, this is what Paul says in his letter. Let's read. Verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. He starts off not saying, I'm an apostle, like he did with previous letters. When he was writing to the Galatians, he was saying, listen, I'm an apostle, which means I've got authority and you got to listen to me. Paul instead says, I am a prisoner. I don't have freedom, but my freedom is given to Jesus. Not imprisoned by man, not imprisoned by Rome, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And Timothy, our brother. You see, you're, serving, you're always serving somebody. You're serving the world, you're serving God. Even if you serve yourself, you're serving the enemy's system, the ways of living. So it continues on, it says, To Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Apphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. Being such a one as Paul, the aged, and now a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I'm sending him back. You therefore receive him. That is my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay, not to mention that you owe me even your own self besides. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, 
Luke, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. If you got lost there, that's okay. We'll go slowly. But tonight, I want to focus on the three main characters in this book and put ourselves in their shoes. Three main characters. You got Paul, the friend. You have Onesimus, the fugitive. And you have, lastly, Philemon, the forgiver. The friend, the fugitive, and the forgiver. Want us to put ourselves in each and every one of their shoes to ask ourselves the hard question about what does forgiveness actually mean and look like? What should we be aiming for when we forgive? And first, let's put ourselves in the shoes of Paul, who is the friend mediating between two people that have a disagreement. Maybe you found yourself in such a dispute. Let's say that you have friends, and maybe you've been in that place before, where two friends are arguing, have a problem, wrong each other, and you are the one who's mediating. Maybe a friend comes up to you and says, I don't know what to do, what do you think? What would you say? How would you handle the situation? Let's say maybe a friend had completely offended another, but had a change of heart. Because that's what happened with Onesimus. Onesimus firstly left while he was still an unbeliever but then when he met Paul his life had changed he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior he's a new creation he's a new person now and so now that that's happened how is he to deal with him I had um, even though I've grown up in the church there was a friend of mine who I, I was pretty close with back in high school and then being the legalistic dumb kid I was when I was a freshman she had a rough day or whatever and she was dropping f-bombs or something and I completely just outcasted her I just completely stopped talking to her altogether cut her off out of my life because I felt like she was in whatever way in my weird logic like she was going to corrupt me or she was one like out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks so if you're a curse you're probably a bad egg and I need to stay away from you in my convoluted logic that's what I thought and unfortunately, I hurt this person really, really badly. I don't know how bad I, I, I could have hurt her. Maybe I was one of those people that she feels like that's why I can never trust Christians. I know she's not walking with the Lord anymore. And I saw her a couple years ago and I apologized to her face. But maybe you know of people that have hurt other people. Some people are always critical of others. Always pointing out what people do wrong. Whenever I teach for... Uh, CCS, and I'm teaching, you know, Calvary Christian School. I'm teaching the little kids, the preschoolers. They're the most critical people on the planet. They'll look at me and say, cut your hair, cut your hair. You know, when I had long hair, just made fun of me. I always left feeling terrible. Little kids, if you're boring, they'll let you know. When are you going to be done? When can we play a game? We don't care. Go away. You're terrible. They say stuff like this all the time. They're going to be the most terrible children ever. I leave there, I'm just like, why do I even do this? But really, though, some people are quick to rebuke and to shun other people. There's been cases where, you know, someone didn't get the memo, we're on a retreat, and someone happens to wear attire that isn't the most modest. And then everyone comes up to me and is like, Alan, are you going to do something about this? Because how can they wear that? And oh my gosh. And they're just accusing it. And look, they just got saved last week. Give them a break. Calm down before you go on your high horse about how you never show your elbows and you never show your toes. Why don't you just 
cut them some slack. I remember there's a kid here, and he doesn't come here anymore, but there's a kid that came here, and he was, like, cursing. And everyone came up to him, like, oh, gosh, there's a guy who's cursing in church. What do we do, Alan? I'm like, he's not saved. What do you want him to do? This is the way he talks. It's like, come on. Are we really going to be that critical of other people? We're always going to point out, like, oh, I don't know. And just everyone laughs, like, ha, ha, he didn't get the memo that you can't say the S word in church. And they don't know. They grew up like this. We can't expect the world to behave like the church because of the world. No matter how critical you are, the Bible says something very different than what we're used to. It says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, speak the truth in love. Some people are all truth. Oh, yeah, yeah, man, we got we to gotta lay down the hammer. What they did is wrong. What they're wearing is awful, stumbling. Look at all those people. They're, their eyes are blind now. Just, everyone's so adamant about truth. On the other hand, some people are so adamant about love, love, quote, unquote, that they never speak truth. Like, oh, well, you know what? I don't want to offend them. I mean, like, if they want to live that way, that's fine. You know, if they want to hurt people, I just, I mean, I never... I don't want to tell them that they're wrong, especially, especially when people gossip to you. It's like, oh, I can't stand that person. Oh, my gosh, they're so terrible, blah, blah, blah. And you don't want to say, hey, you know, are, you're gossiping, and that's wrong. Maybe you shouldn't do that. Because we're afraid of being the one that points out their faults, and we don't know if the person that's gossiping to us will then turn around and gossip about us to other people. So it's speaking the truth, yes, truth, but also speak it in love. So our love for God and others should be our motivation in correcting others. Not like a lot of people do. You're gossiping, 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 saying, oh, I hate this person, I can't stand them. But you know, I love them, I do love them. It's like... <laughs> the tagline at the very end, so that you're fulfilling the, the conditions of the Bible. It's like, I am doing it in love, but I can't stand them, but I love them. I hear that way too often. And I found myself guilty of the same thing at times. Well, if you have a critical spirit, you have to know that you can't pin the law of God against the love for his people. You cannot pin the love of God against the law, uh, the law of God, against the love of his people. Because some people are just like, oh, we love God so much that we need to uphold the truth and we need to uphold the law. But if you really understand the law, those two things are not uh, in conflict with one another. If you really love the law, the, you know, Jesus said, you can sum up, sum up the entire Bible, all the commandments in this. Love the Lord your God with our, all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God means that you're loving other people. Even in 1 John, it says, you think that you love God, but you hate your brother? Guess what? You're not. You can't say you love God who you've not seen if you hate people that are made in his image that you can see. So that being said, we need to be able to have love for other people and let that be our motivation for correction. And this is what Paul does. He says in verse 8, though, you know, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the age and now a prisoner of Jesus Christ. 
I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. Notice he, he doesn't even see him as a slave. He's my son. He's my brother, he says later on in the letter. Onesimus, someone dear to my heart. And, and Paul could have been like, you know what? I'm an apostle, and I'm going to lay down the law and tell you that you better forgive him, and you better welcome him back into your home. But he didn't say that. He says, I could command you, but I won't. Instead, I'm going to appeal to your heart. Love. That's what it's all about. Have a love for people, not a love for being right. Paul Tripp, who's a, a, an author, said this. Whenever you believe that the evil outside of you is greater than the evil inside you, a heartfelt pursuit of Christ will be replaced by a zealous fighting of the evil around you. In other words, where this really stems from, the judgmentalness that we, we can often adopt, usually comes from believing that people are worse than yourself. The real problem is other people, always making mistakes, always doing things wrong. And if they just figured it out like I do, then the world would be a better place. But when I understand my sinfulness, when I understand how evil I am and how terrible of a person I am, then I'm a little bit more gracious to the people around me. Because I understand we all share the same problem of sin. So this is where a good awareness of our own spiritual brokenness will keep us from thinking that we are better than others. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say, did anyone go to Phil Wickham last night? Phil Wickham concert? Cool, two people, sweet. I was gonna go, but I didn't go. So let's say that you wanted to go see your favorite musician, but we'll just fill in Phil Wickham because he's a beautiful man. Let's say that you're going to the Phil Wickham concert and you find out about it too late. It's all sold out and you're bummed that, oh man, I want to see Phil Wickham, but now I can't because it's all sold out. And then someone, Mr. Mike Duquesne, hands you a free ticket to Phil Wickham. Like, yes, thank you so much. You're so grateful. And you go to the concert for free. And as you're standing there in line, you, you got the will call or whatever, you, you're bringing it to the ticket booth because you got a free ticket. You're looking at everybody in line that's being rejected. And they go, oh, if only they got here sooner. If only they bought it before it got sold out, they would get in like me. You wouldn't say that because you received it for free and you recognize that. And everybody inside the concert, whether or not they got a free ticket, you recognize you're all there because of the same reason. So... In the same way, if you, re if you recognize that grace is a free gift that you have received, you haven't earned it, it's not something that you won, then you're not, you're not going to be quick to judge people that also have the same predicament. We are all under the law, and we all receive grace when we accept Jesus into our hearts. So, Paul uses encouragement, and I think that is a perfect way to start off the letter. And that's actually a biblical way to start off the letter. Many people will go straight to you talking about what's, what they did wrong. But that's not what Paul says, right? In the first couple of verses, he says in verse 4, I thank my God making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus Christ and toward all the saints. And he, so he talks about this, encourages him. This is Paul's method. He's thinking about how can I win these two people back in a good relationship, good fellowship? How can I appeal to them? So we, we asked you in the beginning, 
to fill yourself in the blank, put yourself in Paul's shoes. You have two people that are disputing with each other. How can you get them to reconcile? Well, you start off by encouragement. What are the good things? Before you point out the bad things, start off with the good things. That's what the book of Ephesians is. Three chapters of encouragement. This is who you are in Christ. And then three, three uh, other chapters about what you are to do because of what Christ has done. So, start off encouraging. Everyone can notice bad things, but can you commend someone else first? There's that popular proverb that says, you can catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. And sweeter words can often get people's attention before you, uh, you, you go harsh on them. Second thing he does, we already talked about, but he does not appeal to authority, but he appeals to love. Now, a side note on slavery. We might look at this and ask ourselves, why in the world did Paul not use this opportunity to talk about how terrible slavery was in the first place? Because Paul doesn't say that. He doesn't say, and by the way, slavery is evil and it's terrible and we should abolish it right now. I have the opportunity. I'm an apostle. Why doesn't he do that? He had the perfect opportunity for this and yet he avoids it. Well, what we see here is that Paul really understood that, okay, so many of us see an opportunity for social justice. We see an opportunity to correct people. But ultimately what has to happen is a change of heart. And that's exactly what Paul is doing. And what we see in history is everywhere where the Bible is preached and the gospel is spread, slavery is abolished. It's by the scriptures, by people recognizing that we are all on the same plane. There's no, neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek. When you recognize that Jesus came to save all of us, and we're all getting to heaven, not on our own merit, on our own works, but by what he has done, now all those barriers are diminished. You don't have classes anymore. You don't have these hierarchies. You have man and you have God. And you have what Jesus has done, and we all get in based on his good works. And so it, the gospel truly does eliminate social barriers. And we have to allow people's hearts to be changed rather than trying to change government. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't take social action when it's needed. That doesn't mean that, and we're going to talk about that in the coming weeks. We're going to talk about what to do when people, you know, are constantly feeding to us that, you know, abortion is a woman's choice and it's okay to kill people as long as they're inside of the womb. And we're going to talk about that. And we can be adamant about that. Ultimately, though, you can have arguments all the live long day, but if people's hearts aren't changed, then we're missing the point. Warren Wiersbe, who's a commentator, said, it was not that Paul avoided the problem of slavery. Rather, he realized a true solution would be found as men and women gave their hearts to Christ. Okay, so we pointed out the friend, Paul. What about the fugitive, Onesimus? Notice that Paul says in verse 12 that he is sending Onesimus back. Why did Onesimus have to go back in the first place? Maybe you're here today and you've done things wrong. You're an Onesimus. You're a fugitive. You got away with things that you deserve to be punished for. Maybe you're here today and you never got caught for a sin that you've committed. And you look at what Paul is telling Onesimus. And we have to ask ourselves, why did he have to go back? I mean, it's 
this is before he was saved, it's a long time ago, you know, whatever. Let bygones be bygones. Let Onesimus move on. And finally, I mean, he's going to move on too. Why does Onesimus have to do this awkward thing of delivering a letter back to Philemon? Why does he have to bring up that hurt and that pain all over again? Maybe you're asking, once I've confessed my sins to God, isn't that enough? I said sorry to God. I asked for forgiveness. He cleansed me from my sins. Can't I move on? Is it necessary to seek reconciliation with people I have wronged? Well, let me start off by saying, first of all, confessing each and every sin to a brother or sister is not necessary for salvation. So that it's very important that I'm clear on that. I'm not saying that you need to go right your wrongs with every single person that you've ever wronged in your life before you get to heaven. It's not true. Your relationship with God is clear once you ask for forgiveness from God. What I am saying, though, is if we do not seek restoration with people, we can often give a foothold for the devil. That's what I am saying. I'm saying that withholding reconciliation will have horizontal people consequences. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 through 27 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Sometimes if you have a grudge, if you have unresolved sin in your life, that can give a place for Satan to work and divide the church. I mean, think about it. If you have disputes within the church and you say, you know what, let's just move on. Even though I got away with it, I'm just gonna, I'll go to a different church and whatever. You're allowing Satan to further divide the church. And you're giving him a foothold in someone else's heart. It also creates unrest in your life. Psalm 32 explains when David talks about his sin with Bathsheba and when he held it inside, didn't let anyone know, never confessed it. He said, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silence, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. And you guys know, when you bottle sin up, when you dig it and you, you, you bury it deep down inside, it can create unrest, guilt, a weight that you're never able to get rid of until you make reconciliation with someone that you've wronged. The Bible says in James chapter 5, verse 16, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The Bible also says in Matthew chapter 5, says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 5, if you got a problem with your brother, before you make your sacrifices, before you come to the altar and do your religious duties, first take care of the wrong that you've done against somebody else. Before you come to the altar and you talk to God, deal with your sin that you've uh, committed against somebody else. And that's what Jesus commands us to do. The Bible also says, he who knows to do good and does not do it to him, it is sin. So once we are right with God, we need to do our best to make right with others. All kinds of verses in the Bible. Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says, 
as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. We see all throughout the Bible that we are to reconcile with people that we can. And so Onesimus was sent back to make things right, to heal wounds that had been left open. I want to point out a verse to you, verse 11. It says about Onesimus that he was once unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. Now, there's something that's a nuance here that you're not going to see unless you speak Greek or read Greek. And that is Onesimus' name means profitable. And what you see here is that he was once unprofitable, but now is profitable to you and to me. It's a play on words. He says he once was useless, but now he's useful. And the word Onesimus means useful. He was not able to live up to his name in the past, but now he does. He is useful because he's been changed by Jesus Christ. And so it might be the case that you have a weight inside of your heart. You have sin. And because of that sin, you feel like you're not able to be used of God. Because of what you've done in the past, whatever you've committed, it's so bad. And it's so bad to you. It just haunts you all the time. And you feel like God will never be able to use you. You're useless. Absolutely useless. Well, you know, the Bible says, never says in the entire Bible that people are useless. Never. There's one thing that's useless. Idols. The Bible says that idols are useless. Absolutely useless. But people are never useless. In fact, even people that refuse to accept God are useful. In Romans chapter 9, it talks about there are people, the vessels made for honor or dishonor. And if you rebel against God, God actually even uses your rebellion to further shape and hone his people. All kinds of people get used. Bad people, good people. The question is, do you refuse to be used by God? Because if you submit your heart to God and you say, Lord, use me, even as broken as I am, as sinful as I am, would you still use my life? He will. And he can make a person who was previous useless to the world useful in the kingdom of God. Continuing on, it says, or let's actually go to the third person, third and last person. We talked about the friend, Paul. We talked about the fugitive, Philemon, or Onesimus. Now let's talk about the forgiver, Philemon. And just as we need to confess our sins to the party we have wronged, we need to forgive those who have wronged us. Forgiveness. We talked about this. So we, we talked about if there's a dispute, speak the truth in love. If you're that friend. If you're a fugitive, confess your sins to one another that you might be healed. Make it right. Whatever it is. And maybe there's a person that you've hurt and you've been like separate. You haven't been even coming to youth group. Or maybe that friend doesn't come to youth group because of what you've done to them. It's time you went to your brother so that you would be healed. Lastly, we got to talk about the forgiver. Forgiveness is not a suggestion for the Christian. It is a command from God. Matthew chapter 11, or sorry, Mark chapter 11 says, I tell you, you can pray for anything. And if you believe that you have received it, it will be yours. But when you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. 
That is a heavy, heavy passage. He says, when you're praying, ask God for whatever you want, but first forgive those who have hurt you. It also says in Matthew chapter 6, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Those are some heavy, heavy passages. And so we must forgive because God forgave us of our sins. Alistair Begg, who's a pastor, said, Anytime I harbor animosity towards anyone, it is because I have diminished my sense of the debt I owe to the living God. This is what we talked about before. So many of us are quick to judge others and be unforgiving because we don't think that we're really that bad. And here we see Paul model Jesus. Look at verse 17. Paul says, if then you count me as a partner, receive him, Onesimus, as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay. Not to mention you owe me even your own self besides. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. See, all sin offends God before it offends other people. And when we do a wrong, what we're saying is, well, thanks, God. I'm glad that you created me and you have a purpose for my life and you want me to do certain things. You expect me to live in certain ways in honor and love to other people. But I'm going to do my own thing, which, in fact, hurts God and hurts other people. But we can't minimize the fact that we've done something wrong against God. And so Paul says, if Onesimus has done anything wrong, Charge that to me. Paul didn't do anything wrong. He's not even a part of the process. But he says, if, if Onesimus owes you money, I'll pay. I don't care. I want to see this relationship healed. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us. He said, put that on my tab. Your sin, the things that you've done wrong, charge that to me. And I'll nail that to the cross so that you can be clean. And that your sins could be washed away. If Jesus was willing to do that for us, why would we ever hold sin that other people have committed against them? If God himself was not willing to do that for us. You see, this brings up a point, which is forgiveness does not just wipe things clean, but someone is always taking the offense. It's not like Paul is saying, well, you know what? If uh, Onesimus has wronged you, just forget about it. I mean, come on, grow up. You're rich anyway. He didn't say that. He says, charge that to me. I will take the offense. I will pay if I have to. I write with my own hand. What's really funny is if you look in a certain translation of the Bible, it will like bold and, and capitalize and write in huge letters whatever Paul writes with his own hand. And there's other books of the Bible where it says, see with what large letters I write. You know, it's like, did Paul not know how to write? He's just like giant letters or something. But Paul is saying, I am so adamant, I want this to be so clear that I am willing to take this offense. And so when we forgive, there is pain that we are taking on ourselves. But we have to understand that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. He took it and charged it to his account. When I worked for the gas station, I don't know if Joey knows the story. But when I worked for the gas station, there was one night I wasn't feeling good. I was feeling terrible. I thought I was having an allergic reaction or something, and I was getting dizzy. I was by myself, and I had to drop money in the safe. And so I 
I was trying to, but the safe wasn't working. Things weren't working. Had about $300, and I'm, like, trying to jam it in there. It's, I'm there by myself, and I'm dying. I'm literally dying. I'm calling my mom, like, I need Benadryl or something because I think I'm dying. And I'm going to pass out. Last thing that we needed Marvin to see in the morning was a dead gas pumper. So, so I'm trying to stuff it out. I was just like, I'll just put it in the register. I'll lock the building. I'll leave. So I did. put it in the register. Told Marvin. Told people that had to know. I left the cash not in the safe. Put it in the register. In the morning, someone took the money. So didn't know what happened. I lost $300. And so I'm like, oh, gosh. what? Uh, I felt terrible. I lost $300. That's not like a small amount of money, right? So... I feeling guilty and terrible. I'm just like, all right, well, you have to just, you know, take out my paycheck. And he tells me, and don't worry about it. I'm like, what do you mean don't worry about it? He's like, yeah, don't worry about it. It's fine. It's all good. And I couldn't wrap my head around that. Because it's not just I will forget about it. He lost money, 300 bucks. And this is not to elevate any one person. But for me, that was the perfect example of what true forgiveness is. Because it's not like he just suddenly got $300. I don't, like maybe God dropped $300 out of the sky. I was like, because you're forgiven, here's $300. But most likely not. He probably never received that money back again. But he was willing to take that offense to win somebody else. And that is what we are to do as Christians, is to take the offense on ourselves. And the beauty of that, when it actually happens, when we actually forgive people like that, it will blow people's minds. To see that you're going to forgive me even though I've done something terrible and I've offended you. You're just, you're just going to take it upon yourself. People ask, you know, is the gospel really that easy? If I live a terrible life and then at the end pray for forgiveness, Jesus is just going to forgive me? You know, if Hitler at the end of his life was just going to be like, oh, uh, Jesus, just save me. And he was genuine about it. He goes to heaven even though he did so many terrible things in his life. How is that fair? Well, you understand it's fair because Jesus Christ didn't just say, well, we're just going to forget about it. But he took that sin upon himself and says, it doesn't matter how bad you are or what you have done. I will take your pain and bear it on my body. That's what he did on the cross. And in fact, we are constantly to remind ourselves in communion when we take of the matzah and drink of the cup. We're to remind ourselves of what sin does and who had to pay for it. How can we not love others when Jesus loves us that much? When he took your pain, your sin upon himself. Godly forgiveness is much more than saying that we're going to drop a grudge or forget about the offense. It means that you're willing to take pain and you're willing to to take it upon yourself because of what Jesus has done for you. You know, some people, I, I had a, a student years ago say to me, Alan, I want to forgive these people. He was teased, you know. And none of you know him because this is really, this is like four or five years ago. It's a while ago. He was really, really upset because a bunch of the kids made fun of him, teased him, said really terrible things that you would never expect Christian kids to say about each other. But I know you guys say it all the time. I'm just not pointing fingers. It just happens. I'm not surprised when those things happen. And he was so hurt, he never wanted to come back to the youth group. And he told me, he's like, Alan, I'll forgive them, but I just won't be friends with them anymore. I'm just, I won't be that close with them, but I'll forgive them. 
And I said to him, you know, what if Jesus said that to you? You know what? I'll forgive you of your sin. I'm just not going to be your friend. And I'm just not going to be that close with you. He's like, well, I don't know about that. And it's hard to hear that. But that's exactly what true forgiveness is. True forgiveness means that you place yourself in a vulnerable position where you're willing to be hurt again for the sake of winning your brother or sister. Absalom was David's son. And in 2 Samuel chapter 14, when King David uh, gave an order, said, Absalom may go to his own house, but he must never come into my presence. And Absalom never saw the king. David said, I'll forgive Absalom for what he's done because he murdered his brother and he's done some terrible things, so I'll forgive him. He just can't come to my presence. Now Absalom was so offended, and what we see from there on forward is Absalom goes to divide David's kingdom. Instead, true forgiveness is like Joseph and his brothers. Even after, jo after Joseph's brothers wanted to kill him and throw him into a pit and did all these terrible things, sold him into slavery, Joseph went up and kissed his brothers and wept on them. The same people that tried to murder him, he was willing to give them a hug and be vulnerable around. And this is the kind of forgiveness that Jesus himself wants us to show our brothers and sisters. Now, an objection you might have is, but you don't know this person. You don't know who I'm thinking of. They will never change. They'll, they'll never change. Well, number one, I'll ask this. How do you know? Are you God? No. And God is God, and he's the one who told you to forgive them. And number two, are you to forgive just based on how they'll treat you? Because Jesus died for us while we were still sinners, and even for people that would still reject him. In conclusion, I want you to look at verse 15. And this is what Paul sees throughout all of this. Throughout all the pain, all the suffering, all the misery, Paul wanted to point out something to Philemon. He said this, Perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. If there's any verse to abolish slavery, there it is. More than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul says, yeah, yeah, I, I know what you went through is terrible. I know he took your stuff, he left, he did what was wrong. He deserves actually to be put to death for what he did in, in the Roman era back then. But do you think maybe God worked it all together for good for this very purpose, for this very reason? Maybe the reason why God allowed Onesimus to escape is so he would find me I would witness to him, he gets saved, and so that he comes back to you, and, and it is that much more of a blessing to you. First, he was your slave, he did what he, whatever you wanted him to do, but now he's your brother in the Lord. And how much more will he be a blessing to you now you've seen him change? Are you praying that people change? The same people that hurt you over and over and over. Because maybe... Maybe God is working it all together for a purpose. And even though it hurts, even though it's terrible, and even though what they've done is wrong, perhaps God is using it together for his purposes so that you can see a person change forever. I had a friend who was completely 
uh, verbally abused by his boss for, for many, many years. He worked for many, many hours. And he couldn't take it anymore. And I asked him, I said, you know what? Maybe God put you in his life to pray for him so that he would become a Christian and have his life completely changed and that you would be blessed by seeing a miracle in, in, in somebody else's life. To see radical transformation. Someone who is a complete loser, someone who is a complete bully, transformed by the gospel, and now they're your beloved brother. Maybe we should expect that kind of change out of the most sinful people because that's what happened to Paul. Paul himself was one of those people who was transformed by the gospel and became a new creation. Became a person who would later be a person who wrote most of the majority of the New Testament. So here's what you need to know in conclusion. Your pain is not beyond God's plan. Your pain is not beyond God's plan. No matter what it is that you go through, no matter how much hurt you have, it's not a surprise to God. And you know that God even works the worst things together for good. Let's pray.